Hi, I'm David Rothkopf, the CEO of the DSR Network and host of the Deep State Radio podcast. Here at DSR, we have always believed that in a world as complex, fast-moving, and full of risks as ours, we all need access to the best minds. That is why we have created the leading network for expert podcasts on the issues of the day you care about. We go in-depth on politics, the law, national security, foreign policy, intelligence, defense, climate, and new technologies with regular and special guests that are the leading voices in their fields. We also offer daily updates on global news, our DSR Daily, and on a key story of the day through our partnership with the New Republic. That is why over a million times a month, people like you choose to spend time with our hosts and guests. Membership is what supports this, and members get special benefits, including bonus content in virtually all of our podcasts. It's a big deal, and it's a good deal. Our monthly membership price is going to go up for the first time in our history on March 1st. So now is the time you can lock in our founder's rate of just $5 a month. To do so, go to the dsrnetwork.com and click on membership. It's that easy, but don't delay. Today's rates will only be available for a few more weeks. Join us, support us. Go to the dsrnetwork.com right now. Thank you. Nine, 12, 10. 28 2 23 This is Deep State Radio coming to you direct from our super secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of Snark in Washington DC and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another edition of We're All Gonna Die Radio on the Deep State Radio Network. Um, I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Heather Williams. Heather, hello. Hi, John. I have to say at the outset, I'm always happy for us to have these conversations, but this week was particularly spicy one. Lots of things in the news, so really looking forward to today's conversation. Yeah, it, it was hard to narrow things down. It just seemed like the, the bonker balls were dropping left and right. Um, very early in the week, it was clear that um, America was reminded that NATO is a thing, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, and that it's actually kind of important, but for some people, a little controversial. And so immediately we thought, hmm, who do we know knows anything about NATO? Oh, yeah, I think I have a former NATO ambassador um, that um, happens to be uh, known to Deep State and also happens to frequent diners in my neighborhood. Um, and uh, we were thrilled to hear that Doug Lute, uh, retired Lieutenant General and former Ambassador NATO was available. So welcome, uh, Ambassador General Doug Lute. Great. Good to be with you guys. Um, we're going to dive right in. Um, there were a lot of things that happened that were NATO specific this week. Um, but I think a lot of um, people's interests were piqued because, again, we have seen the former president, Donald Trump, talk about NATO in ways that are really sort of disconnected from the from the way the alliance works and seem to really not understand the basics here. And for those that weren't paying attention, although all of our listeners pay attention, um, the pre former president recalled a conversation with a NATO leader 
who said, well, if we're not meeting our 2% of GDP spending goal, um, would America protect us? And he said, if you're not meeting your 10% uh, target, I would tell Russia to do whatever they want to you. And that really sent shockwaves through Europe. So Doug, I, I wanted to really just start with a couple of basic softball questions for you. Um, why does America like, need, and benefit from NATO? Sort of, you know, the softball elevator question. But then what is this dynamic about 2% and why is it important? And why do you think it's misunderstood in some of the political discussions? Right. So first things first, why does NATO even matter? Um, most people have perhaps forgotten, or many people ha- perhaps f- have forgotten that NATO's even around, right? This is a relic of the Cold War and, and so forth. And in fact, uh, just to put a date stamp on this, NATO will be 75 years old uh, in uh, April of this year. So, you know, most people, uh, myself included, retire uh, sometime before 75, right? So you might unless ask, Unless you want to run for president. Apparently. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> it seems like it, it's a, a matter of uh, importance if you're running for high office. Or you want to be in the U.S. Senate, right, for example. Um, so why is NATO still around? And the answer is because it fundamentally serves a vital American national interest uh, on, on at least three fronts. So uh, militarily, it means that if the U.S. is in a security crisis, it enters that crisis with 30 like-minded, militarily capable partners, our 30 NATO allies. Uh, so that's important. And, and that certainly played out, for example, in the aftermath of 9-11 uh, back in 2001, where on 9-12, the day after the attacks on New York and Washington, NATO uh, came to uh, America's assistance when we were in need the day after the attack and then stayed with us for 20 years. Uh, in Afghanistan. And that was all a reflection of NATO's invoking the famous Article 5 of the NATO Treaty. The fifth article essentially says an attack on one shall be considered an attack on all. So so there's an important security rationale for why NATO still remains important. Um, There's also, although, uh, a very important political rationale. And that is because NATO is founded uh, as a as an alliance of democracies. Now we can talk about democracy in NATO today because there are a few who are adrift from democratic values, right? But because of this democratic underpinning, it means that NATO also uh, is a platform uh, for political activity around the world. So the UN has 160 or 190 members. It's really hard to gain consensus there. But our 30 NATO allies, form a base, a political base for political activity around the world. And the third one, which ought to ring true across America, is that um, NATO is the security for America's largest trading partner, and that is Europe. So um, 45 out of 50 states, for example, have a larger trading relationship with Europe than those 45 states have with China. Uh, as an example. And as we look forward in the coming decades to uh, to a competition with China, which everybody pretty much agrees, the, you know, the next 20 years are going to be very much dominated by this U.S.-Chinese um, competition, Americans should ask themselves, we should ask ourselves, how do we want to enter this competition with China? And I would argue we should enter it with an unfair advantage in our favor, right? Which is that 
alongside our roughly 25% of global GDP, we can bring the European roughly 25% of GDP and compete unfairly in the uh, coming decades with China. And, and lastly, I just cap it by saying NATO is especially important because it gives us that geostrategic advantage that neither President Xi in China nor President Putin in Russia have anything to compare. I mean, if you, I mean, it's it's almost comical, right? When uh, President Biden uh, stands with his thirty NATO allies in a, as they refer to it, a family photo, at a big sort of at a summit, right? Um, and you say put put that picture in sharp contrast to an adjacent picture of President Putin and his counterpart photo. You've got somebody from Iran, you know, uh, somebody from North Korea. Lukashenko is always in there somewhere. Lukashenko's proud to show up. Okay. So, I mean, this is a pretty sharp contrast. That's the, that's the photo that Americans ought to keep in mind. The 31 NATO allies uh, and um, Putin and Lukashenko. So it's important in many ways. Now, you also asked about 2%. So let me, let me dive a little bit into that. You know, when I got to NATO in 2013, uh, so this is before the previous invasion of Ukraine. Right, so the 2014 invasion of seizing of Crimea, destabilize of the Donbas by Putin. In 2013, there had been for years talk about two percent of national GDP being the aiming point, being the standard for how much each of the NATO allies should spend on their own internal defense. In fact, it was most often, this is rather, I found kind of comical, it was most often agreed among defense ministers, <laughs> right, that their own budgets should be 2% of their national GDP. So they, you can imagine defense ministers would meet, they'd say, oh, GDP, you know, 2% sounds good. They would go home to their capitals. They would talk to their, you know, finance ministers, their prime ministers and so forth and say, well, NATO, you know, agreed that my budget should be 2%. So that always seemed a little self-serving to me. And by the way, it wasn't highly effective, right? And not many of those defense ministers were able to carry that message back and actually promote their own budgets. 2014, however, was different. So in the first six months of 2014, you had the following cascading events. You had the seizing of Crimea by Russia. You had the destabilizing of Donbass. And you had this fellow al-Baghdadi, all dressed in black, take the uh, podium at the mosque in Mosul uh, in Iraq and declare, um, declare the physical caliphate of the Islamic State. That all happened one, two, three in the first six months. In September, so shortly thereafter, NATO had a scheduled uh, summit. President Obama's in the chair uh, for uh, the U.S. And at that summit, NATO agreed that the security situation had fundamentally changed with this cascading set of events, right? And they had to do something about it. So for the first time in September of 2014, NATO leaders, not just defense ministers, right? But NATO leaders who actually control, to some extent, their budgets, right? Their national budgets agreed that 2% should be their target. And they gave themselves a decade to get to 2%. So they said over the next 10 years, right? At the time in 2014, there were only three countries who were at 2%. U.S. was one of them, right? So it wasn't a heavy lift for Obama to, to sign on to this agreement. Uh, today, 10 years later, that pledge 
as well as sustained security challenges in Europe, have resulted in the following progress. For 10 consecutive years, starting in 2015, uh, NATO allies, other than the US, so isolate the US, push them off to the side, right? Other NATO allies have had real increases for 10 consecutive years. So that's pretty impressive. Uh, while we started with, I think, three NATO allies at 2%, today we have 18, right? Now, 18 is not everyone, right? 18 is not 31 NATO allies, so we're not all there yet. But moving from three to 18 and having 10 consecutive years of real increases suggests that the 2% pledge signed under Obama had, had real impact. Now, as the former NATO ambassador under Obama, I'm sometimes asked, well, wait a second. You know, Trump takes credit for the increased defense spending. So was it Obama or was it Trump? And I argue that it was neither. It was another president, Vladimir Putin, who is most responsible for this sustained uh, real increase in European defense spending because he presented the threat. So that's kind of 2%, uh, 2% 101, uh, if, <laughs> if, if you will. So, Doug, um, I, I have some questions for you about nuclear weapons, but just to kind of foot stomp your 2% point, you know, in those recent statements, Trump was saying these things like, you got to pay up. Um, I mean, it almost sounded a little bit like a geostrategic shakedown that he was uh, that he was going for there. It sounded like Mar-a-Lago dues, right? I mean, like, <laughs> no, it's, it's it's like it's it's straight out of Goodfellas or, or The Godfather. Oh, be yeah. something terrible would have happened to your beautiful alliance if uh, if right. you don't pay up. Right. Yeah, like you know, take the cannoli, uh, and so I I think that the way you've outlined it shows that this isn't like it's not nearly as transactional as Trump is making this sound. That it's not the, transactional at all. Look, yeah, like the importance of the alliance goes so much deeper than just dollar signs. That it really is fundamental to American security, to European security. Um, and I thought one you made one point that really jumped out at me. It's about NATO as a platform for political activity. That is such a great point in showing how the allies, it's a space where the allies can interact with each other, can share um, mutual concerns, can, can find like shared solutions. Um, and so I, I think that you've really hit home that 2% is not, it's not a shakedown. It's like our support for NATO is not some favor that we're doing. Well, Heather, you're right. And, and I mean, most fundamentally, the allies don't pay 2% to someone. They commit 2% to themselves, right? So it's 2% of national budgets uh, for their own militaries. Now, in the face of a crisis, those militaries might, with a national decision, be committed to NATO, right? But they don't belong to NATO, and nobody pays that 2% to NATO. So it's not dues. Um, and I, I think you hit it on the head. Well, it's also worth thinking about the scale here too, right? So it Look, it, we don't get any of this money, right? This is money that they're spending in their own country. But we spend upwards of $900 billion a year on defense. The defense budget of Estonia might be $1.5 billion, $2 billion. So even if you were getting all this money, it would be a drop in the bucket to compare what already the American people are spending on our own defense and for the defense of Europe. So it, it really does seem to be a mismatch. But Heather, I cut you off. You're going to talk about something we really care about. Nuclear weapons. Yay. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, no, I, I, obviously NATO is a nuclear alliance. Um, nuclear weapons are a pretty fundamental part of alliance unity. 
um, and um, and NATO's mission. NATO includes a nuclear mission. Um, Doug, can you say a little bit about how do you think, if at all, has NATO's has the role of nuclear weapons within NATO changed, particularly since uh, twenty fourteen and since uh, Vladimir Putin came along? Well, actually, Heather, it hasn't changed much at all. It's been a consistent, basic point about NATO as a defensive alliance that depends on, in part, on nuclear deterrence as the ultimate guarantee of security uh, among NATO allies. And so this is this is reinforced by the fact that, as you said, NATO is a nuclear alliance. Uh, it has three nuclear members, so uh, alongside the United States, uh, the UK, and France. Um, NATO has in its force structure um, access to 200 U.S. weapons, nuclear weapons, based in Europe, which are part of NATO defense planning. Now, don't get me wrong. These We haven't given these up to NATO. They're under complete U.S. control, 24-7, 365, um, but they're integrated into NATO deterrence and defense planning. Uh, so they, they represent the nuclear, the U.S. part of the NATO nuclear deterrent by way of their presence. And, and by the way, they're hosted on European soil with European host countries uh, and so forth. Uh, equally important, though, is that this is not a, a single nation that contributes to the nuclear deterrent of, of uh, NATO, but rather three nations, three independent nations, the US, UK, and France. And, and that trilogy, if you will, of nuclear capable allies means that any potential aggressor uh, can't count on simply countering or deterring one, would have to have to try to take on the complicated task of influencing the calculus, the nuclear calculus of all three. And all three are independent. So there's a there's sort of an amplifying effect, a deterrent amplifying effect of having three centers of nuclear deterrence inside the alliance. Um, and so it's in place. It really hasn't changed much uh, over the years. And I would argue it is a stable, consistent, durable part of the deterrence equation uh, for the alliance. So steady as she goes, if you will, with nuclear deterrence. It, it's a critical point because you know I did not have on my bingo card this week. Maybe Germany needs its own independent nuclear arsenal, or maybe Poland needs its own independent nuclear arsenal. But the public discourse in Europe really um, um, catalyzed after Trump's comments. There was a sense of, well, look, if the U.S. is not going to be there for us, who are we going to rely on? And there's a reason that the United States has alliances. You've listed a number of them. But another big one is that it's actually helped keep countries from going nuclear. Um, most people don't even know that Sweden and Italy had nuclear weapon programs that they were thinking about back in the 1960s. Uh, South Korea and Japan also thought about going nuclear in East Asia, Taiwan as well. And the U.S. system of alliances has helped keep those countries non-nuclear, in part because they rely on the United States and in part because we like it that way because it gives us a more central role. And so um, it's important for you to point out that it is also the British and French who form a key part of the nuclear deterrent in Europe. For if any reason the United States were not able or willing, 
NATO would still remain a nuclear alliance. And that's something we need to be um, um, reminded of. Well, John, you're right. I mean, this this approach, the policy of what we call extended deterrence, that is deterrence beyond the U.S. itself, to a deterrence promise to our allies. And whether they're the other 30 NATO allies or there are uh, Asia Pacific allies like Japan and South Korea, for example, uh, is important because it helps secure those allies, right? But it also has this other role of, uh, uh, in effect, being a non-proliferation tool, right? Because it it makes the case to, say, Germany or to South Korea that they need not uh, become nuclear because they can count on us. So uh, the obvious implication of that with the last week's news is that if our promise is at risk or questioned or uh, our commitment is doubted, then it, it operates in the opposite direction with regard to incentives for proliferation. And, and that's, a, that's, a, that's a global interest that we minimize, that we constrain the number of nuclear weapon states. So one of the ideas that has been floated is that if the if US would if the US withdraws from NATO or if the Europeans feel like they can't count on the US for extended nuclear deterrence anymore uh, that France seems to be willing to uh, use its arsenal potentially as some sort of a euro deterrent and to extend a nuclear umbrella. I mean, this isn't a new idea. This was around in the 90s as well. Um, but I mean, that could prevent some proliferation uh, concerns. What do you think about that idea? Well, I, I mean, I, I think there is some value in that. As, as, as I've suggested, France and the UK have, been, have national policies that, in effect, extend their deterrence um, uh, beyond their own national territories and, and into the European, uh, among the European uh, uh, allies. But look, the, the French capability is an order of magnitude smaller and therefore um, less redundant, uh, less resilient than the American capability. Um, and, and so I think that's a factor. Uh, the reality is that, and just the uncertainty in our conversation today, is the same kind of uncertainty of, well, who would do what? Would, would this country decide that? Is exactly what this three-legged nuclear triad among NATO allies presents any potential aggressor, right? Any potential aggressor would have to listen to this podcast and say, wow, you know, if I want to defeat um, the nuclear deterrent threat in NATO, I've really got to do this three times over. And so it's a complicating factor, which I think really serves to, as I said before, sort of reinforce, buttress, or even amplify the, nucle the nuclear deterrent posture of the alliance. To be fair, I'm going through the membership rules. I do not see a Putin uh, on our paying member. So he's he might get the free stuff, but he's he's not going to get the information after the break. So we've That's got right. to process it. All right. I think well, he's got go. the $5 a month though, John. So, well, but you know how many rubles that is these days, Heather? It's like 19 100. billion rubles, right? So, <laughs> um, so speaking of Vladimir Putin being a cheapskate, uh, unfortunately, this is the part of the podcast where we pause and we say thank you to all of our listeners. Um, and we unfortunately have to say goodbye to our listeners who are not members. 
Um, and we'll continue the conversation after the break. But we encourage everybody, if they like what they're hearing here, if they're interested in what's going on in America and around the world, uh, to go to deepstateradio.com and become a, a, a paying subscriber. For $5 a month, you not only get access to this podcast, but a whole bunch of other good stuff, including with David Rothkoff, who, um, while uh, not as good looking as I am, is way funnier. Um, and so uh, hope you will. <laughs> Doug, Doug's unsure of that. You've spent more time with him than I have, although we, we do have sort of a menschy sense of humor that we both sort of enjoy. Um, at any rate, um, but really want to thank everybody for listening in. And uh, in a minute, we're going to talk about uh, Russian space nuclear powered something or other uh, after the break. So if that's not enough of a draw, um, hope uh, you've enjoyed listening and uh, stick with us. We'll be right back. 